then changed me to the Republican Party. The political affiliation now says Republican Party of Florida. A Local 10 exclusive. Voters shocked to find their political parties changed. That's illegal. It's against the law. People are being taken advantage of. The calls to investigate mounting. Not partaking in that and tanking, you know, cost me my job. Alleging rampant racism and bribes to lose. I'm angry, it makes me, uh, makes me sad too. The fired Dolphins coach takes aim at the NFL. Who will be Broward's new state senator? It continues to blow my mind with the backlash that we're getting from Tallahassee. My family has served this community for three generations. And I look forward to continuing that legacy. The candidates here to debate face-to-face. -face. It's all live this week in South Florida. Good morning. Glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putney. I'm Glenna Milberg. We begin with mounting calls to investigate how South Florida voters unwittingly had their political party affiliations changed. The patterns are hard to ignore in the series of claims we first reported about in December. All senior voters, some lifelong Democrats, after visits from a voter registration group helping to update voter IDs, they discovered theirs had been changed to Republican Party. This week in Tallahassee, State Senator Anna Tadeo of South Dade, the vice chair of the Ethics and Elections Committee, tried to address this outbreak of election fraud. She tried to amend that big election security bill moving through the legislature. And she joins us now. She is a Democrat and she is a candidate for governor. Senator Tadeo, Annette, good morning. Great to see you. Good morning. I, I think we might be having some freezing Zoom technical difficulties. We're going to try to get back to the state senator on all of what she has found in her office with her hat on, sitting on the Ethics and Election Committee in the state Senate. Uh, give us two minutes and we'll be right back. All right, we are good to go now with Senator Annette Tadeo, a Democrat from Southwest Miami-Dade and a candidate for governor. Once again, Senator Tadeo, Annette, great to see you. Thanks for being with us. And you're moving this time, which is always a good thing on Zoom. Um, Senator, I want to talk to you right now wearing your hat for the vice chair of the Ethics and Elections Committee. You got the first calls from your constituents about noticing their sudden change in party ID after our reports in December. Since then, you've gotten a slew of calls. What have you found? I have found a lot of people right here in South Florida, mostly Hispanics with limited English who are afraid. Some of them were afraid to tell me their names for me to be able to report what was happening because they're concerned that they're going to come after their, uh, their benefits. And it is really appalling. Many of these people that called have fled from Cuba and where they're not allowed to vote. And here, lifelong Democrats, their registration was switched to Republican, and they didn't even know until they got the new card. It's outrageous. Head should roll. This, is, this should not be happening. And it definitely needs to be investigated, like I've been asking since December. And we should change the law to make sure 
that we actually have election integrity. The election integrity that Republicans love to talk about. They, the governor wants an election police. How about if we make sure that things that are going wrong are actually the ones fixed, like I tried to do with my amendment this week okay, to let's, that election yeah, uh, Annette, I, we, Annette, we know that you wrote a letter, strong letter, to uh, Miami-Dade Election Supervisor Christina White, pointing out this is not a one-off. It looks like an organized effort. Has she responded to your request for an investigation? No, uh, but I know that I copied the mayor of Miami-Dade, who then in turn sent a letter uh, to Kathy Fernandez Rundle. I also had a conversation yesterday with Kathy Fernandez Rundle, and I know she came out with a statement uh, saying that they have been investigated, they have heard, and obviously I'm making sure that both Christina White as well as Kathy Fernandez Rundle have the information of the voters that have called my office, some of them calling my personal cell phone, telling me about their experience. So I want to, um, just to bring all of our audience together up to speed and make sure everyone knows what we're talking about, these are people who were visited by what's called third-party voter registration organizations. There are hundreds of them that are authorized by the state to help people register or change. Uh, they go to door to door, sometimes knocking. In this case, that seems to be the case. Um, and so I, the, the Republican Party of Florida is one of those registered. Every case that we have seen so far, it seems to be that particular group. Uh, the party officially had said they do everything by the letter of the law in a statement to us, deny any wrongdoing, even say that they're looking into it. Have you received any calls from registered uh, Republicans who find that they are suddenly changed unwittingly to Democrats? No, and as a matter of fact, I have gotten pictures from some of these voters who have called, where they took pictures of the people at the door, the ID of the people, and it very, very clearly says Republican Party of Florida in the ID, which is again, very concerning. And at a time when, <laughs> after the governor said that this was the best state, we should be the, the, the entire nation should be copying us, now he wants a police force and they want to put all these other caveats so people can't vote by mail the way they're used to, an additional envelope now, putting your last four of your social security, all these things. And yet we're not doing what we should be doing, which is making sure that situations such as this one don't happen. Phantom candidates, that we do something about that and we hold people accountable, not just the candidate, but the people behind helping them. So you're... These are the... I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. I just want to, again, I, we talk a lot of inside baseball sometimes, so I want to lift up the tent and make sure everybody is, is on board and with us and, and so people can understand this. So what you're talking about is this massive elections security bill, is what the sponsors call it, with a lot of moving parts, went through your committee, elections and uh, ethics in elections this week. And so you raised this amendment that would stiffen the penalties for doing this kind of fraud, then withdrew the amendment why? I withdrew the amendment because the sponsor of the bill actually said he was willing to talk to me about it. And we did. We have talked about it and the conversations are continuing. I do think it's essential and I'm going to keep pushing that we change the law so that this becomes a major issue, not just something, although it is fraud. If you are 
pretending like you are re-registering somebody or updating the registration, but you don't tell them that you're switching their party, that is fraud. I, I just want to, still, uh, for, for the record, I just want to lay out there, we don't know that that's what is happening. That's what seems to be happening, but we have not. Okay, just want to be very clear about that. Yes, and, and you're absolutely right. But I want to make sure that also the fees to these third-party groups, which in this case, the third-party group is the Republican Party of Florida, I want to make sure that no matter what it is, this shouldn't be partisan. This should be something that we should all want to make sure that the fee is so outrageous that organizations are much more careful to make sure this doesn't happen. But this seems like a concerted effort. It's almost like the Republicans know that they need to reduce the number of Hispanic voters in specifically in South Florida and it's very targeted to elderly, non-English speakers. It's very, very concerning. In a state that's decided by tiny margins, obviously it's going to make a difference. And if it is a concerted effort, I believe heads uh, Senator, if I could, I hear a little kind of audio interference in the background. Maybe a TV is on or something. If that's true, please ask, you know, your aide to turn it down because your voice is being sort of distorted a little bit by a sound in the background. Great. All right. So let, let me ask you about this Senate bill that you are considering with the uh, uh, the legislature to create a elections integrity fraud investigative office 52 employees a, a, a budget of what six million dollars uh, let me just ask you do you think that if in fact uh, this is created and they investigate do you expect a fair investigation by a Republican Republican created body of the Republican Party of Florida, which is apparently, they say they have no role in this, but they have made, they have probably hired, it would appear, the agents who have been at, you know, these elderly uh, high rises. Again, it seems like a concerted effort, and I do believe it requires an investigation, which is why my original letter was to the Secretary of State. Unfortunately, it's, that was December. I've yet to get an answer. So we, we do need to investigate. I know the Senate has the ability to uh, ask for subpoenas and ask people to come in and get to the bottom of things. Unfortunately, I don't know that they have the courage to stand up to their own party. But again, at a time when they're saying we need to trust elections, we need to trust the system, we need to trust government because we don't want anybody playing games with an election. I agree with them. But the problem is everything they're trying to do has nothing to do with the problems we have found. That's why I had seven amendments. One of those was dealing with this issue. Another one was dealing with the with the fact that we had phantom candidates in three Senate races the last cycle. One race right here in South Florida decided by 32 votes. And things like that where we had real issues. Those are the concerns we should be fixing. But we still have last year's law in the courts currently being litigated at the federal courts, whether it's legal to begin with. And, and, the, and we haven't even figured that out yet. And we're trying to put more... 
gets in the way. As a matter of fact, I know Miami-Dade Supervisor of Elections, Christina White, has spent much of her week in that lawsuit participating. Um, let me just ask you to clarify, because just because someone has uh, a, an affiliation, a party affiliation on their voter card or NPA, no party affiliation. Uh, switching your party doesn't affect who you ultimately vote for in at the ballot box. But I want you to help um, sort of clarify what the ramifications truly are if someone has their party switched. And the first coming up would be uh, because Florida has closed primaries, someone would not be able to vote in their own party primary. And, and I wonder if you would just kind of take that and expand on, on what you know and your perspective. This is really important. We do have a close party state and primaries. So therefore, only those members of the Democratic Party will be able to decide who will be, for example, I come running for governor, who will be the nominee to represent Democrats and to be specifically targeting Hispanics in Miami-Dade is very concerning as the Latina in the race. But not only that, let's put all that aside. There are other issues, which is again, the, the fact that these people feel duped, feel like they're targeting them. They fled, many of them, most of them I spoke to, fled from Cuba and are getting concerned about their own benefits. They live in public housing. It is very, very concerning to them. Many of their meals, they get driven. I mean, all of this is a lot of government help and they're very concerned and scared and they shouldn't be just because they wanna exercise their right to vote. This is unacceptable and it should never happen in America. State Senator Annette Tadeo, we appreciate your time. We will be watching this and we invite you to please do keep in touch with us on what your office finds out. Thank you. Thanks, Annette. Up next, the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. An elections law expert, former state lawmaker J.C. Planis, is going to join us live. That's next. The laws that govern elections in the Sunshine State are complex, including those that govern third-party organizations that register and update voter information. We have a lot of questions about how what happened happened. J.C. Planis is a Miami attorney specializing in Florida election law, and also he's a former state representative from Miami-Dade and joins us live now. J.C., great to have you. Good morning, Glenna. Good morning, Michael. Always great to be with you guys. Uh, JC, let me just ask you to get on the record here. Glenna did some, in my view, extraordinary reporting, you know, showing that these older Hispanic, Spanish-speaking, mainly Cuban-American folks who live in high-rises, subsidized housing in Miami, they were duped. You know, they yes. were shown, we're going to help you update your information, and their voter registrations were changed. I mean, this this is really attacking foundational American democracy. You, you, you know, Michael, you mentioned one thing, and when you look at the, even the minimal amount of um, absentee ballot or mail ballot voter fraud, it always occurs in nursing homes, residential housing, or ALFs. I think one of the things that we have to do besides strengthening the voter law is we need to limit access of any sort of voting entity to to these places. I've lobbied before to have mandatory supervised vote by mail voting in these buildings, and that can almost eliminate all of the fraud there. With these voter registrations, the fact that it occurred in these buildings 
shows the fact that we need to start treating how um, politicians deal with these buildings in, in a better way. You know, that, that's such an interesting point, because I, I will tell you, in our reporting, at least one of the public mm -hmm. housing complexes, the senior housing, uh, Haley Soft G Towers in Miami, is a closed mm -hmm. and secure building. You cannot get in unless you are invited by someone or you have a little card that you can swipe. So any third party voter organization representatives here, here we're actually looking at that, would have to be allowed in, yes. which is frankly not unusual. When we were there, residents opened the door for us. So, but yeah. we also have reports of people who live in homes as well. Um, but here's mm -hmm. my biggest question is, the third party organization rep helps there. They have been reported to be very kind, very nice. They do their thing. And then the voter signs at the bottom. And if mm -hmm. the signatures match, which what we have seen and the records we have pulled, we've told the signatures do match. What recourse does a voter have if a voter puts his or her signature at the bottom of a change form? Well, if the voter can attest under oath that they were lied to, that the person who got the form didn't tell them that they were switching parties, then that is fraud. There's a statute 104.061, and it basically it's a felony, and it's about deterring voters through fraud. As uh, Annette, Senator Tadeo mentioned in the last segment, we are a closed primary state. So by changing someone's registration, you are now prohibiting them from voting in the primary of their choice. If that voter can swear under oath that they were fraudulently duped into doing this, then the person who got that registration for them, knowing that they were already registered, because remember, they knocked on their door knowing that these folks were already registered and they were changing the registration, it would be a violation of 104.061, which is a felony. You also have a statute 104.41, which is violations not otherwise provided for. And that was a catch-all that was placed in the statute for, you know, occurrences that knowing that, you know, sometimes fraudsters will think up new ways to defraud voters, and that's a misdemeanor. We have things in the statute that prosecutors could use, but this would only be in the case if the voter can attest um, and swear that they were duped into doing this. Uh, Miami-Dade State Attorney Catherine Fernandez-Rundle, I think in the past we have shown that she is can be aggressive in prosecuting, investigating voter fraud, and she appears to be on the case. We have not heard a formal response from her yet, but would you assume that she's going to move forward with some alacrity here? Well, based on the way that they have prosecuted the issue of the false candidate, which again, Channel 10 was an instrumental part in breaking that story, the way they've done that prosecution leads me to believe that they're going to take this extremely seriously. I can tell you the fact that they haven't given comment on this is, is important because yeah. what they never give comments on are active investigations. Right. If they would have given a response, I would be uh, more concerned that they're not taking it seriously. The fact that they haven't commented means that they have probably looked at things already. I, I want to just um, alert everybody to a tweet that Kathy Fernandez Rundle's office put out late yesterday that they are aware of uh, recent reports of f registration fraud. And according to the tweet, we have been investigating these claims for several weeks now. Um, and, and there it is. Tommy, I, our know, producer, is so on point today. So this is a tweet that 
the uh, state attorney put out. So we don't know where the investigation is, but we do know that um, she's aware of it and is on it. JC, I wanted to um, put up another graphic with some numbers because switching parties is mm -hmm. a thing. People do it. Yeah. Uh, so we asked for the records from all of last year and right up to date the, to this week. These are the people mm -hmm. in Miami-Dade, the voters who switched parties. 5,488 Democrats became Republicans. Uh, just under 1,700 Republicans became Democrats. Wow, on so many levels. What do you make of those numbers? You know, it's interesting because you don't really see radical voter registration switches. Folks don't, I mean, you know, I was a rarity. I switched last year, but but it's a rarity. People kind of tend to, to view this with tradition. You have to look at voter switches with a skeptical eye. I, I think that, especially in today's politics, where things have become a little bit more radicalized, I would, I would be less skeptical of massive uh, registration switches to NPA, no party affiliated, or, or as we call it, independent. I'd be less skeptical at that as, you know, from, from Democrat to Republic. And I think it's something that we definitely need to look into. Yeah. Uh, JC, uh, as you well know, because you're an expert in this area, only a few years ago in the state of Florida, there were about 300,000 more registered Democrats than Republicans. The number has been going steadily down. As of, I believe, early January, the governor said we have more Republicans registered by about 30,000 or so. And, you know, to give credit where credit is due, the governor and the Republican Party of Florida have put on a massive voter mm -hmm. registration drive. It would just be so unfortunate if part of that drive was to get older people to inadvertently mm -hmm. change their registration. I, I mean, listen, this is something that the, the Republicans have always had a better ground game than the Democrats. As a new Democrat, this is something I'm looking to, to help change. But I, I do think that something that, that causes a swing like this has to be looked at with, with skepticism. I think we have to look at something else as well. Other states don't have identified party voter registrations. Other states have open primaries. I think the time is now for open primaries, especially when voters are susceptible to something like this, which can stop them from voting in the primary of their choice. When you look at voter registration increases, the actual percentage, the highest percentage increase is actually NPA. You have a lot of voters that are dissatisfied with the messages coming out of the two major parties and are registering NPA. The fact that we don't give these folks a, an opportunity to vote in a primary that many times decides who sits in the state legislature, who yeah. sits in Congress, I think is, is shameful. I think the time has come now to open our primary system so, you know, shenanigans like this will have less impact on the voters. Well, as uh, as an NPA, I would absolutely like to talk about that. And one day we'll do a whole show on it. Yeah. J.P. Planis, great to have you. So appreciate your perspective. Thank you, J.C. Always good Thank to you. see you. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. Up next, Broward County voters are about to elect a new state senator. Thanks, guys. Good time to hear them face awesome. to face. Thank and you. guess what? They are standing by for debate when we come right back.
Broward Senate District 33 was one of three legislative seats suddenly up for grabs when three lawmakers, all Democrats, resigned to run for Congress. And one of those seats, Senate District 33, which represents a big hunk of central Broward, will be determined by the winner of a special election next month. March 8th is the date. Today, the two finalists in that race are with us to make their case for voters. Democrat Rosalind Osgood runs the Development Corporation for the New Mount Olive Baptist Church. She was a Broward County School Board member for a decade, chair of that body. In fact, Republican Joseph Carter is a third generation Fort Lauderdale native. He is a political newcomer as a candidate, but not new to politics. The Broward County public school teacher was suddenly terminated late last year after publicly calling out the district on their mask mandate policy. To both of you, welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's really good to have you both here face to face for our little mini debate. And since you're both in education, why don't we just start there? Because you are both on opposite sides of the mask mandate issue. Uh, Rosalind Carter, as chair of the board, you were um, one of the most vocal to uh, ignore the state's ban on mandates and paid some financial consequences for it. Joseph Carter, you say you were terminated for being vocal about not really buying into the mask mandates. So right now in a bill going through the House, the House budget this week, as a matter of fact, would take $200 million from the 12 districts uh, as a penalty for those districts ignoring the mask mandate and give that money to the other 55 that went along with it. So Rosalind, let's start with you if we, if we could. Uh, what do you make of that budget retransfer of money? I think that this continues to give um, light on this egregious attempt to defund public education. The mask mandate was used. The data showed that it protected our kids and our students and staff with preventing our schools from becoming super spreaders. We have moved on beyond it. The governor has called a special session that made it impossible for us to mandate masks. But yet we have legislation that would target administrators who are not school-based in their salaries and they had nothing to do with making the decision it was a board decision and then subsequent legislation to reduce the salary of school board members it is an outright attack on school board members who chose to protect and prioritize the people in their district and this type of weaponizing of policy and legislation is not what we should do in a democracy yeah, just, i think it's yeah. wrong yeah, excuse me, uh, Joseph Carter, you as a teacher and as an individual opposed the mask mandates. You said so in school, you lost your job. Was that a political thing? Did you lose your job because you disagreed with the school board? Well, I, to be clear, I, I didn't say that that was a reason I lost my job. Um, the, the stance that I have taken is the fact that um, after being terminated, I called the school board several times trying to find a reason and was not given one. Um, my only thing is when you don't give a reason, you just leave a lot to be, you know, determined. Uh, I, I don't know why I was terminated. And, you know, there's still a math teacher position open at the school where I was. Um, but but to be clear, I wasn't against masks. I was never against masks. I just feel that for a district the size of Broward County, we have 270,000 plus students with varying, um, you know, uh, disorders, uh, learning disorders, you know, a, a, a wide array of situations that 
only the parents are going to be able to decipher um, what's best for their child. And I just thought that it was incredibly irresponsible. And quite frankly, I felt like it was just a political move to, you know, start an argument with the governor um, to make these rash decisions for that many students. I've always felt well, like well, more yeah, Mr. Carter, let me let me just jump in, if I may. Yeah, I, I'm sure Dr. Carter, I mean, Dr. Osgood is going to say, well, look, we relied on medical science on the recommendations of the CDC. Mm -hmm. This was not, you know, on a whim. We had that policy in place to protect the safety, life and well-being of children and staff. And, and again, when I spoke at the school board uh, meeting, I made sure that I was, you know, clear in the fact that I believe that their intentions were good. I don't believe anyone was acting in, in malice. Um, however, we don't know the medical conditions that may uh, prevent students from wearing masks. We don't know the uh, learning disabilities or any reason why a parent would not be comfortable with their child wearing a mask. I believe that we should be when it comes to children's health and the choices in children's health we've always given that choice to the child you know i mean to the parents you know when i was a kid and i got uh strep throat or i got the flu or the chicken pox my parents knew okay we can't send him to school and all of a sudden we saw a situation where that choice is being taken out of the hands of the parents and ultimately that's where it should have been so as a, uh, as, a as a candidate i'm i we are not interrupting by choice we have this much time and a lot to cover and want yes. to hear you so much <laughs> Understood. Uh, so yeah. i i know that you are a big proponent of parent choice and school choice bills that are right now in the uh legislature rosalyn osgood how about you I think that we have to look at the decisions and we have to look at the Constitution. The Constitution of the state of Florida says that the citizenry elects local school board members to make decisions. I think when we weaponize a bill and call it parent choice, it's actually disingenuous and misleading. Parents had a medical opt-out with mass mandates. Parents have parent conferences, many of them volunteer a lot of their time in the school. They are very engaged and active in school and what go on in school. When we pick and choose certain bills and certain legislations to target parents, to get them all up in arms about a lot of fake news that's being uh, perpetuated about what's going on in schools, it's wrong and it's disingenuous. Parents have always been involved in their school's education. Immunization for, has been required for schools. Even when I had to go to school, I had to have certain shots and certain immunizations. So I think as we look at the time of public policy, we need to be honest that our democracy is under attack. I am pro-democracy. I will always fight against anything that won't allow me to imagine a multiracial democracy where every single individual have the right to vote, the freedom to speech, the freedom to expression. And what we're seeing now with current legislation in certain states threatens our entire democracy and school systems are being targeted because that is a part of the history of this country where we target education and mm -hmm. school districts to be yeah. disingenuous or evil to certain races. Joseph Carter, we turn really quickly to redistricting, which is a, a huge thing going on in, in uh, Tallahassee right now. And their fight really is over what lawmakers, some lawmakers want to preserve what they call minority districts. Um, I went through some of the things that you've said publicly and, and tweeted publicly.
publicly or on Twitter a lot, and you actually had a tweet that, I don't want to quote it because I don't have it in front of me, but um, you seem to say there are no uh, Hispanic districts, there are no black districts, that they're just districts. And I wonder if you would expand on that as far as your perspective on the redistricting. Yes, um, I, I know the tweet you're talking about, and it said, and I said, quite frankly, there should be no Hispanic districts. You know, I grew up in District 20, which is considered a black district. However, I had neighbors that were white. I had neighbors that were Hispanic. I had neighbors that were Republican, Democrat. There should be there should be no district in this country that purposely represents one group of people. We are all Americans at the end of the day, whether you're Democrat, Republican, black, white, gay, straight woman, man, the, at the end of the day, we're all American. And and this is something that my grandfather instilled in me, um, that we are all Americans. He fought in World War II along people who were white, black, and he didn't look to his left and look to his right and see a white man. He saw another American soldier fighting for the same cause. So if you, you, were, if you, we, if you were in that Senate committee, you would not be voting to preserve any sort of minority representation? Would I would that, be would voting be to preserve... Valid? I believe the best way to go about redistricting is to keep as many munis munis municipalities intact as possible. Um, I don't like the idea that we have like half of Fort Lauderdale in District 33 and half of Pompano Beach in District 33, because what that does, that creates a disconnect between the state legislatures and the um, local municipalities. Uh, I would prefer a redistricting that simply tried to keep as many cities within a district as possible so that we can have a more integral relationship between yeah. state legislators, state senators, and but, um, mayors and city commissioners. We understand, I don't but, but in, in fact, Mr. Carter, that is by law what redistricting should be, is not to divide cities or communities, is try to keep them whole and uh, integrated. Uh, Dr. Carter, uh, uh, excuse me, Dr. Osgood, uh, let me ask you, as you well know, this district is a huge part of central Broward County, 521,000 constituents, and 51% of them are black, and they need representation for issues that are important to them. Uh, Mr. Carter seems to be saying that's not really a big deal. Is that a that's big deal? That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. Well, it, 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 is, it is a big deal. And I think that the history of this country has taught us the importance of representation. We all have our different lived experiences. And as we look at Broward County, as it's drastically becoming a minority majority county, it is important that we have representation from our ethnic groups. It's important that we have representation from our LGBTQ community. When I'm sitting at the table, my lived experience as a black woman, as a single black mother, is very different than someone that's not black. It doesn't make one right or wrong, but when we're all sitting at the table, we can collectively make a decision that's gonna be in the best representation of the entire community that we represent. All right, and well, the, the, the election, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to interrupt. The election is March 8th. We really appreciate both of you coming on and expressing your point of view, and good luck with the election. We'll see what happens. Thank, Thank you. you, God bless. All right, up next, it has been the bombshell story of the week. Allegations of racism in the NFL. The uh, Miami-Dade County Black Affairs Advisory Board Chair is with us next.
there's one black head coach in the National Football League. There's 70% black players. There's just not enough people of color in you know, the, the executive and higher coaching level positions. I think it's painful for every uh, black or minority player, coach, executive. To this be the year 2022, and we're still dealing with a lot of the same things. That was Brian Flores this week all over television with a bombshell story. The lawsuit he filed against the NFL and the Dolphins that he uh, says that they allegedly they fired him in a, a, a wrong way and he could not get another job as cannot many other black uh, candidates for coaching. Flores accuses Dolphins owner Steve Ross also of bribing him to lose games in the 2019 season so the team could get a top draft pick. Allegations that Ross is calling false and malicious and defamatory. The industry is football, but the issue is racism. And for that, we turn to the chair of Miami-Dade County's Black Affairs Advisory Board and good friend of ours, Stephen Johnson, is with us. Stephen, we miss you so much on the roundtable here. <laughs> uh, but great to have you with us. Stephen, welcome. Morning, great, great to have Thanks you back. I would like to make one point known, and that is the Black Affairs Advisory Board has a new chair, Pierre Rutledge. So, Chair, uh, we're going to call you Chair Emeritus. And Mr. Rutledge, oh, if you're I, watching, <laughs> we will have you on very soon. <laughs> Stephen right. Johnson, uh, let me ask you first to put on your lawyer hat. You're a very good lawyer. Uh, you've looked at the lawsuit that uh, Brian Flores filed through his lawyer, a excellent lawyer named Douglas Wigdor, but he's up against Stephen Ross, a billionaire, the NFL. Uh, I mean, this is going to be tough sledding. What are his chances here? So it's an interesting lawsuit. What he's done is he, he has tied his boat to the boats of a lot of other people like Colin Kaepernick and like a lot of other coaching candidates and brought it as a class. By bringing it as a class, he's only saying he is one of many. So these things that might not be as bad that happened to me, here's some other examples. Let's all go before a jury together. Now, it's hard to get a class certified, um, but he's got a point which is if the Rooney rule is a sham and interviewing of black coaches is only done to check a box and not to give that particular candidate an opportunity to become a head coach of the NFL, then that's wrong. Yeah. And I think the NFL is going to have some problems. It's, you know, there's some stats that, that people need to be aware of. Apparently, 11 of 32 head coaches are related to former coaches or existing coaches. 25% of coordinators are related to other coordinators. The NFL has a problem. It knows it. But in a league that's over 50% black, as far as players and participants, the percentage of black head coaches is absurdly low. So in the lawsuit, um, to your point, the Broncos and the Giants are also name-checked. Um, and today, as a matter of fact, the NFL put out a memo that says it's reviewing, quote, reviewing our diversity practices, unquote. So does that, may to you, sound like the league knows it has a diversity problem? Or is yeah. this a PR statement? Or so, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it was somewhere in between. Well, no, let me add. I'm throwing the ball to you. You take it. So, so remember, we're talking about a league that just 18 years ago, there was a question about whether or not a black quarterback was fit to, to run a team, right? This, this is not the, the 
idyllic land of opportunity and equality. And it's not a meritocracy. It's not the best person shall prosper because Colin Kaepernick still is sidelined, even though you have journeymen who are in their 11th, 12th, and 13th year, never having started for a team, let alone a team that went to the Super Bowl. Um, so understand first that the NFL is a country club, right? And they act like they're a country club. It's not a meritocracy. The fans should be incensed, not that their team would play for a, uh, a draft pick, but they should be incensed that their organizations are telling them, hey, we're doing the best we can. It doesn't really. So the, the reason for termination publicly for Brian Flores' termination is poor collaboration. So we're all watching something, we're all listening to something, and I, I want to hear how you get from poor collaboration to wake up and look at the racism. Well, it, it's really simple, right? There, there's a saying in the black community that it's, it's on us to be better and work harder than our white counterparts. Now that is certainly not fair, but that is something that we understand implicitly. For black coaches, it's even worse. Imagine a world where this coach went 0-16 and, and the fans have to sit there and look at this coach the following year and the following year. We are talking, of course, about a coach that delivered back-to-back -back wins over the Patriots, back-to-back -back wins over the, the Jets, and two winning seasons for a franchise that is struggling, right? So imagine a world where that man has to say, I've got to look at the fans every day. I've got to look at the community every day that I represent but I am told to actively tank. That's an absurdity. We should all be offended just about that portion of it. And don't be surprised that it's not the only incident, right? But ask yourself, is that what we want in our sports? Sports is the ultimate display of merit, right? Is that what we want in our professional sports? And I also note one more thing. The Miami Herald today posted a, a their own findings concerning the, uh, the 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 use of race and, and the existence of a problem for the NFL. And what they did was they didn't look at how black coaches were treated. They took people of color, and that's the wrong question to ask, right? Because this country might have a complicated relationship with a lot of different groups, but it has a very unique relationship with how it's treated black people yeah. from the start. So for, for me, looking at this, the NFL certainly has a PR problem. It's certainly going to be asking a lot of the black players that it says, trust us, we have your, your, your best interests in mind, right? To continue to trust them, to tell them, hey, after you're done playing, you can have a spot here coaching. But you can't because some guy who's only played lacrosse, and I'm talking about Bill Belichick's two sons, is occupying a position that you might be Steve, a great fit for. Steven Johnson, I'm right. going to have to jump in here and say thanks for your insights. We value your expertise and your point of view. Thanks for being with us. And uh, we'll continue this conversation. The lawsuit's going to go on for some time, I suspect. Our thanks, Achilles Steve. heel is always time. Stephen, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And everyone should read Luke Campbell's piece in the New Times. He has a lot to say on this issue. Uncle Luke's okay. piece. We'll be right back. Thanks. Bye. We'll be right back. You stay tuned. <laughs>
We thank you so much for being with us this hour. We can continue the conversation online because we're online 24-7. And as always, remember, stay informed, get involved. Have a great Sunday.